Welcome back to our Friday episode of the official Sasta podcast brought to you by Jason Lemkin, founder at Sasta, who you can find at JasonLK on Twitter, and me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC, who you can add on Snapchat at HStebbings with two Bs. Now, it's been a while since we had a world-class VC investing in SaaS on the show, and I'm delighted to say that the wait is now over. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Nakul Mandan. Now, Nakul is a partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners, where he focuses on early-stage SaaS investments. And at Lightspeed, Nicole led the firm's investments in Gainsight and Reflective. And previously, Nicole worked at Battery Ventures, where he helped lead the firm's investments in category-defining companies, such as Marketo, Blue Jeans Networks, Gainsight, Intact, Sixth Sense, and Yesware. And prior to Battery, Nakul worked at Blue River Capital, a growth stage investor focused on India. As always, for more Sasta resources and the show notes from today's episode, then head over to sasta.com, that's S-A-A-S-T-R.com, where you can find all the previous episodes, as well as a library of incredible SAS articles, videos, and resources. But now it is time for the show today, and I'm delighted to welcome Nakul Mandan, partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Nakul, such a pleasure to have you on the official Sasta podcast today. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, absolutely, Harry. Uh, thanks for having me. Now, I'd love to start off today by hearing how you made your way into the world of SaaS investing. I don't imagine at kindergarten you said, I want to be a SaaS VC when I'm older. So what was your route into SaaS investing? Yeah, it wasn't till about seventh grade um, when I started talking about big data enabled recruiting, but a um, <laughs> little late to the game, I guess. Um, <laughs> Always time to catch up, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So actually, uh, yeah, I've been doing this for 10 years now. Uh, in, in reality, I actually got an early start in my career to venture. So taking a step back, I grew up in India, studied there, uh, went to IIT for my undergrad, in engineering, straight away went to business school in India. You know, early on, venture capital fascinated me with the view that uh, I could do this for two, three years and um, learn more about businesses and how companies are run or do something of my own uh, eventually. So that's what got me excited about venture initially. Uh, and I basically hustled my way into it, cold emailed a bunch of people who were either VCs uh, or my extended network who seemed to be connected to VCs or LinkedIn or other places and got a lucky break in early uh, 2006. Uh, this was a firm called Blue River Capital. It was a growth investing firm which had raised $140 million for their first fund in India. So joined them as an associate, stayed there for three years, had a lot of fun, role aligns well with my personal strengths and weaknesses. So really kind of doubled down since then uh, on venture capital as a career. The thing I decided around 2009 is I wanted to do even more earlier stage investing than, than what we were doing at Blue River. So joined Battery Ventures in 2009 in India to help them set up the India practice. And through a couple of organizational changes, ended up being in the Bay Area for Battery, uh, still focusing on India investments here. Uh, this was 2009. And while I was here to get more exposed to the Bay Area ecosystem, I started kind of volunteering for uh, U.S. investment opportunities with some of the U.S. partners. And then in early 2010, Battery gave me the opportunity to transition to being full-time focused on the U.S. market, specifically Bay Area uh, early stage market. So that's how I got my entry into the VC ecosystem. 
and why SaaS is really a combination of, you know, what got me excited about the trends at the time when I started in the Bay Area, some of the things that excited me personally. I'm personally a productivity geek uh, at work in terms of finding tools and processes to run my day-to-day job better. You know, the ideas around running marketing or sales or uh, a real estate agent's business better using software, those ideas resonated with me more. And plus, I also came to the Bay Area at a time when the advent of web-based software was really redefining how business software was sold and used. That kind of an upheaval was go- undergo- uh, undergoing. And so those two things kind of got me uh, excited about being a SaaS VC in the Bay Area. So stayed out at, at Battery for five years, uh, had a great run there. And then uh, two years ago, joined Lightspeed to lead SaaS investments here. So been in the Bay Area for seven years now. And, and I have to ask then, as a productivity geek myself, what are your favorite yeah. productivity tools very quickly before we dive into SaaS? Yeah, so uh, I live and breathe in Evernote. I use a to-do list called Workflowy. It's, uh, it's a very, very simple to-do list app. So that's one of my favorites. I use Relate IQ a little bit, but not enough, I would say. Pocket for reading and later on reading and nuzzle for kind of filtering what I should read. So those are the four things. But but I want to jump into SaaS. So so today we're going to split yeah. the show in half. And for one segment, we're going to discuss the next phase of consumerization of the enterprise. And then the uh, second, we are going to, after the deep dive and the 60-second SASTA, we're going to jump into Series A SaaS investing. Does that sound good? Yeah, sure thing. Okay, so you've said before that we're beginning to see the second phase of the consumerization of enterprise. So I have to ask, what does this entail and look like to you? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I think in the last five, six years, whenever we've talked about the consumerization of the enterprise, we've mostly talked about ease of use, better design, intuitive UI. And my view is that over the last year or so, we've started seeing the second phase. Uh, I've blogged about it, as you mentioned uh, and this time, the second phase of the consumerization of the enterprise is more about the business models with which uh, enterprise startups are attacking their markets. And as I've thought more about this idea over the last year or so, uh, I think the core question to which I've boiled this down to is, uh, can there be network effects in enterprise software? And by leveraging those network effects, can SaaS companies impose a winner-take-all dynamic in their space, the way it plays out in consumer markets. So in consumer markets, ultimately all users go towards one one eventual play. So there's only one Facebook, there's no space for MySpace or the or Orkut or somebody else to own that space. Twitter is the only one with the real-time nature of social networking. Uh, I guess messaging has played out differently a little bit, uh, but most markets converge towards one player. But traditionally in enterprise software, there's no network effects, right? If I'm deciding between Marketo and Pardot, my decision is pretty independent of what you or the rest of the market use. I could use other customers' inputs on those decisions uh, as to what I can use, but that's about it. And so what that means or has meant is that in the first generation of SaaS businesses, there were no winner-take-all dynamics and companies eventually won based on the right pricing segmentation and sales and marketing strategies. And my view is we are beginning to see enterprise SaaS businesses that leverage network effects and will impose winner-take-all dynamics in their markets going forward. And that's pretty exciting because that can 
result into pretty massive companies if they suck out the air of the, out of their competitive landscape and you know become the winner in a large space and you know i'm, I'm, intri- I'm intrigued then how do their business models actually differ yeah so i think it, the the business models take shape in uh two or three forms one could be an enterprise marketplace right wherein users on both sides of the marketplace are one discovering each other for whatever they are looking for but they they might also be provided some workflow tools to manage the workflows on their sides and then the software could be monetized both on the workflow side or on the transaction side or both right so you know zenefits is a great example they give free benefits management software but then monetize on the insurance side uh, there are companies like contently which do it on the content marketing side so there's a network of content writers that companies can access uh but contently also allows or also provides some kind of tools around content management and scheduling and just overall uh content marketing tools you know there are other other marketplaces like upcounsel for lawyers and stuff like that so i think that's one business model the other business model could be around building a vertical market uh network or community where um let's say it's a network of lawyers or doctors who are kind of getting some kind of base collaboration software for free and they're using that collaboration software to share data and intelligence on the platform and then the company monetizes that intelligence or the data that is being collected by building an additional set of saas tools for these doctors or lawyers to better leverage that data right you know github is a very good example of this as a vertical market network for engineers doximity in the healthcare space uh, there are companies like case text in the legal space or building connected in the construction space i'm really seeing an emergence of this kind of play to where somebody builds a vertical market network for people in those verticals to collaborate with each other engage with each other and because of that engagement there's a proprietary data flow towards that platform that really is intelligence and pure uh, data that can be leveraged for additional saas tools and monetization and as a fan of uh, predictable revenue the brilliant book um what well, one central problem with that model oh. surely is the lack of predictability in the revenue streams if they're not subscription based so how yeah. so how important do you think this predictable revenue is for early stage startups So I'll make two points there. One is that I'm not saying that the pricing model has to be either advertising driven or transactional, right? Even if it's a marketplace, you could keep the monetization on the workflow side and give the not take a transaction cut. So both sides of the marketplace are getting some some kind of workflow tools and they're really paying to get access to the marketplace. It's still a recurring fee, but the transactional nature is free, right? For the, so the company still gets predictable revenue. Uh the second point I'm making is even if it is transactional revenue, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that the moat has to be more network driven than competing on features or sales and marketing muscle. If you have a network driven moat, scale begets scale. and it's a strategic mode where once you have an early lead that can be really leveraged versus your competitor coming from behind undercutting you in pricing creating a threat that is meaningful for you i'm intrigued you said there about kind of early network effects what are there any signs to you that suggest early network effects be it high retention rates be it you know large uh, growth in very early days what is it for you that suggests there's the potential for a massive network effect the number one thing that i look for at least is engagement you said retention but 
really double clicking on that and saying what is the engagement that somebody is seeing is it just logins into the platform is it deeper than that creating actual actions and communications while in the platform so i look for that um i also try and understand how frequent is it so monthly act- if you're really trying to look for network effects i don't think monthly active users is a good way to measure that engagement i think you should really look at at least weekly active usage in most cases i'm trying to find companies that have a daily use case for their business user during the work work day right and so uh, whether it's all the way from marketer and yesware to gain site or separate from the trend we are talking but those pieces of software are being used by their users every day to run their business so i think of engagement at a deeper level how many users you are acquiring and how many convert to active users and then hyperactive and those ratios kind of give me a sense as to how deep the engagement is from a network effects point of view it's more uh, also around are people inviting new users into the system as well as are they communicating with each other in some form or shape whether it's across the marketplace and trying to discover each other uh, on the opposite sides of the marketplace or if it's a vertical market network communicating with each other around collaboration and exchange of data and intelligence and then one one more thing i'll make on the pricing model which you touched on earlier even if the pricing model is transactional like in an enterprise marketplace it can still be predictable if the use cases are daily and weekly in nature and not twice a year right so don't get me wrong recurring revenue is great but recurring revenue can churn too ultimately predictable revenue and growth will come if your product is a uh, has a compelling value proposition that your target users just can't afford to not use so i i don't think that we should assume that recurring revenue can never go away you know that's why the entire customer success industry has come up and i would even argue that customer success is as important for repeatable revenue business as important it is for recurring revenue and i'd love to hear what you think more needs to be done then to ensure the continuation of this consumerization of traditional enterprise software more about finding areas for discussion around this kind of stuff and uh, making sure the people who are building it propagate some of the thinking around these things and if some of these companies become really successful then i think it propagates further ultimately you know any business model that becomes the dominant business model in the future will come from success you know people people will follow where where the money goes i, I don't think anything can be done proactively as a market it's more entrepreneurs who will double down on this and if they succeed then it will grow as a business mm-hmm. um, business model and, and i'd love to dive into the 60 second saster which is our quick fire round so i say a short statement okay. okay so what are your favorite sas reading materials what newsletters or blogs can you just not live without yeah so saster is an obvious one um i use saster and sometimes quora for my um, to look for specific answers to uh questions i might have around saas business models whether it's compensation related or specific quotas for mid market or smb perhaps in a certain vertical and stuff like that beyond saas and quora i'd say david scoke's uh, blog uh, at matrix has been pretty informative for me over the years uh beyond that though it's more broader than saas i focus most of my business reading is more about startups and what makes startups and founders great and thoughts on product markets and categories and then greenfield opportunities for you in saas 
Yeah, I think non-traditional industries like manufacturing, construction, you know, GovTech, these are all really waking up to the power of software. The go-to markets, uh, go-to market strategies to these kinds of uh, industries have become simpler. I think those are definitely greenfield opportunities. One area I, I'm pretty convinced we'll see a massive company emerge in is the hourly and freelance labor economy. You know, and so I think, uh, you know, creating a LinkedIn for the hourly labor ecosystem, that idea, I think, will emerge in some form or shape into a large company. And then what SaaS founder do you most respect or admire and why? The one I've had the opportunity to watch closely and learn a lot from is Nick uh, Mehta at Gainsight. You probably know him. Uh, I'm actually delighted to say his show comes out on Monday. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I've been lucky enough to have a front row seat to the kind of how he's been building Gainsight uh, from day one. So uh, I've learned a lot from him. And then customer success on the theme of Nick Mater, uh, integral to success uh, as for companies going forward, or do you think it's a, a passing trend? Yeah, I'm obviously biased as an investor. I've invested <laughs> twice Gainsight, both at battery and light speed. But definitely here to stay and only increasing in importance in my mind. I I think we live in the world of Twitter and Facebook. Uh, No company can afford to have unhappy customers. It doesn't stop at just one unhappy customer. It propagates instantly throughout the world. So yeah, definitely here to stay. And then moving away from the quickfire, but still on the theme of Nick uh, and slightly moving away from the schedule here, but it's too tempting a question I have to ask. You know, you've seen, as you said, Marketo and Gainsight grow and turn into these rocket ship companies. What have been the the biggest learnings from seeing them grow and evolve over time? Yeah, I, I think for me, the biggest learning is every time a new... So in Gainsight's case, it was interesting because it was a completely new market. Uh, and in that, when we thought about it earlier, we used to think that if a new VP title emerges, if a new function emerges in an organization, which is in this case, the VP of customer success, that function has to have its own system of record, uh, go to software category. I, I think both in marketer and Insights case, they became the system of record for their respective functions. The entire functions are run through them. And I think if you build that software, a lot of equity value accrues to you. The way I think about it is if somebody builds another marketing analytics tool and they are pitching to a VP of marketing, the VP of marketing is most likely asking them at the end of the conversation, do you integrate with Marketer or Renoco or whatever else they're using for marketing automation? And that's a signal that, look, he could probably choose between X or Y in terms of marketing analytics, but he he won't replace his marketing automation software for that. He runs his business from there. I think Gainsight is similar. So if you can build software that people are in daily to run their workflow, everyday workflow, I think that's pretty powerful. And then I want to deep dive then on early stage investing in SaaS companies now. Uh, So we hear a lot about the metrics required for a good Series A. Can you share how you think about it and what you look for in a Series A investment opportunity today? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I I think a lot of the narrative uh, over the last couple of years, whether it's on blogs or, uh, you know, other places around what makes a successful CVZ has been around metrics. So get to a million dollars in ARR or have a net retention rate higher than 110 percent or some such metrics. If it was only about metrics, it would be more predictable. But it is not predictable, right? Series A's can be really tough and frustrating for a founder when they see that they have better metrics, but some other 
company in a different product market category is getting a higher valuation or got a round done pretty quickly. And I think it's unpredictable because most of the early stage decision making is contingent more on the thesis and qualitative factors rather than the metrics. The metrics are used to validate that thesis, but they can't be the thesis themselves at the early stages. I think more about, you know, it really, when, when somebody pitches me an early stage investment decision or investment opportunity, I'm really thinking what is getting me excited about the market, the team, and a bunch of other qualitative factors. And so maybe I'll talk about the qualitative factors that I look for. So obviously the first and foremost is the team and how excited you are about working with the team and this team attacking this market. So founder market fit is interesting. But beyond that, the five questions that I think about in my mind, and I have this framework. So the first one I think about is the why now right? Why should this company exist now? What are the macro trends coming together to make this happen now versus three years ago or three years later uh, from today? And that's pretty important for me. Second thing I think about a lot is, again, going back to product category and how mission critical it is for your users' ability to meet their goals. So, you know, you could build a really sophisticated engineering engine like big data enabled and all of that but if somebody is the head of recruiting he's not thinking about what's the best most sophisticated predictive engine for that they are thinking more about what can get my job done quickly and more accurately and more efficiently right and so is some what you're building mission critical to them and does it really help them meet their goals is something i dive deep into Third thing is in my mind is market size. Uh, and that in my mind is not just about the current market size, but also extensible. A good analog for current and extensible market size is about around how Uber started in the black cars market and then extended into ride sharing beyond black cars. And then really has extended into the idea of should you should car ownership really be required in a world where Uber is always five minutes away? And so that's really, really extending their initial wedge. And then the fourth thing I think a lot about is, is there an efficient go-to-market strategy? Questions like, is your user, potential user already educated on the need and are they already looking for your software? Or do you have to convince them that they need this software? And is there an efficient go-to-market strategy around viral marketing or uh, some such uh, initiative? And then finally, uh, what I talked about earlier, is there a deep enough mode and defensibility once you take an early lead that some competitor well gets well-funded and starts undercutting you on pricing, cannot make a, a meaningful dent in your business? So what's the mode and defensibility? So those are the f- five questions I think about. But more importantly for me, it's, you know, yeah, I'll validate the metrics, I'll look at the engagement and some of that stuff. But if I can get excited about this, that's the first step. And this is this is where my thesis is. And, and finally, I just want to touch on, you said there about um, uh, market extensibility. Where do you stand on market creation then? With someone like Gainsight, it, you know, yeah. I think it would be fair to say they almost created customer success. So where do you stand on predicting uh, market creation? That's why extensible markets, you know, having that framework is pretty important. If you think about the why now question, often you will stumble upon saying, stumble upon the thesis of this is a very, very small market today, but in in five years, this is going to completely blow up into a large market that is still fast growing. And so starting from the fundamentals and the first principles of 
why what has changed in the market dynamics that creates a need for this solution today versus 5 years ago and if you start believing in those macro trends coming together for need to exist today that need growing then you can start thinking about market sizing and then obviously the market sizing has to be more about look if this propagates where does this go in 5 years because the reality is customer success even today theoretically if you just do the math around how many people are actually paying for customer success software is a small market today right mm-hmm. the the thesis behind gainside is that it continues to grow it has already grown probably 100x from 3 years ago when nick started uh, and it will grow another 100x from here so that's why i think extensible markets uh, or growing markets are pretty important. Well, Nikhil, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been absolutely fantastic to hear your story coming into VC and then your perspectives and holding measures for determining Series A investments. So thank you so much for sharing them with us. No, thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Please hang up and try again. And I'd like to give a huge hand to Nicole for giving up his time today to be on the show. It was absolutely fantastic to hear the metrics that he deep dives on when looking at startups progressing to Series A. And I'd like to remind you that we have special Gainsight Week next week with Nick Mater on the show on Monday, followed by Anthony Canada on the show on Friday. It's going to be a very special week. And for more Sasta resources, head over to the site. That's sasta.com, S-A-A-S-T-R.com. And you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings with two Bs. Or you can follow Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in. It's been an absolute pleasure bringing you today's show. And we look very forward to bringing you Gainsight Week next week.